Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Nine, a talk of many things. Max and Ian nervously entered the parlor. Romani, Gustav, and Sumbava were present. Baliero and Michelle were not. Max wondered where they were, why they had not been invited, but he didn't question it. With the meddling magician gone, they might get more accomplished. They were all seated around the floor in what appeared to be some 1912 equivalent of bean bags. Two had been left open for Max and Ian. Romani gestured that they should take them. Ian dropped down with a lazy thud, and Max rolled into his. So, you said you had many questions, Romani invited. Max nodded. Yes. He gathered his thoughts for a long moment and then said, We came back here to 1912 for two reasons. The first is to find out what I can about my secret. I think my past self knows more about it than I do. So, I'm here in part to find him, ask him what he knows. My secret is some kind of power, I think. Something I can use to defend myself against the Nibirians who are trying to kill me. And the young me might also be able to tell me who my parents were. Which brings me to the second reason. The machine. The Nibirians are probably building it to take over the planet. We've seen this kind of thing before in our own time. With Jadith in the pocket. And the machine seems somehow related to my secret. The Nibirians are scared that I might stop the construction of it, or that I might destroy it. And they seem to actually think I have the power to do that. So my first question to you is this. What do you know about the machine? What is it? And why are they stealing children? What do they have to do with it? Romani nodded. We too have these questions. But I will share what we know. On the night we met you, Valiaro had been sent on a mission. It was one we had carefully planned for months. He was to infiltrate a sky chamber and learn what he could about the stealing of children, the why of it if he could. And this he did, as you saw for yourself. Before he encountered you two, he had been aboard that very sky chamber for several hours. And during that time, he overheard many things discussed, and this is what he learned. First, the so-called machine is housed somewhere in New York City. It is apparently massive in size and it has been under construction for some ten years. It has been long planned by the Nuberians, centuries in fact, but only recently has it become possible to actually build. Human technology and material fabrication was simply not up to the task until the advances of our modern industrial age. In truth, we know this already, so it was not necessarily news to us, although it may be to you. And as you know, we have been trying to learn the location of their nest, which is where we believe this machine to be located. I take it you haven't been able to find out where this nest is, Max inquired. Gustav shook his head. Last night I made another attempt to discover it. I tailed one of their centurions. He was dressed as a man, of course, in a cloak and top hat. I followed him back to a building on Houston. He slinked through an alleyway, and I swiftly followed in the shadows. He entered. Not wanting a direct confrontation with him, I waited for several minutes, and then entered myself. 
but the building was deserted, save for broken factory machines, orange and bubbled with the disease of metal. It was an abandoned workhouse, nothing more. Well, maybe he left through another exit, Ian suggested. Gustav shook his head. No, suffice to say, that I would have known. So what, he just vanished? Max asked. Gustav nodded. I'm afraid so. And it is the same every time we attempt to locate the nest. They simply enter a building and disappear. And despite our best efforts, we simply cannot ascertain where it is they go. Hmm, books maybe? Ian suggested. We haven't found any, Gustav replied. We have looked, of course. Well, tell me this then. Do the Niberians know about you guys? I mean, the House of the Hidden Hand. Do they know that you exist? We believe not, Gustav answered. However, we cannot be certain. Romani waved her hand. We shall continue. They all nodded. The second thing Ferriero learned, and this part was news to us, was that the Nuberians have been assisted in their design of this machine by the Archons. Max and Ian both jumped. Archons? They were dark beings, powerful enough to frighten and challenge even Enki himself. That's not good, Max finally said. No, Romani agreed. Do you know what they are? Ian asked. The Archons, I mean. We've run into them before, but they just look like a bunch of crows attacking Enki. Romani shook her head. Not exactly. It is possible they are beings from another world, much as Nuberians are, or they may somehow be native to the inner cores of the Dreamtime itself, from another layer of the universe. What, like another dimension? Ian said. Possibly, but we don't really know, Gustav concluded. They are fiercely knowledgeable, however. Of that much we are sure. If they are assisting with the machine, then it has a much greater chance of succeeding at its purpose. But did Faliero find out what the machine is for? Ian asked. Gustav shook his head. No, we have our guesses. It could be a weapon, of course. Something to take over, as Max suggests. Or maybe it's a device to open a portal to Nibiru, a way for them to return home. Or maybe it's a ship. In the end, we simply do not know. But we do know they have been manufacturing machine parts all over the world. They have many front corporations, and through these, they place orders. They send out specifications with vast sums of cash. And the iron workers, the goldsmiths, and machinists of the world dutifully create precisely what is specified, regardless of how bizarre the end result might seem. The money offered is too lucrative. Nobody asks any questions. The parts are then shipped back via sea, arriving in the holds of great ships in New York Harbor. We've infiltrated the docks on many occasions, of course, for a look. And I must say, these parts are usually quite odd. For example, one time we discovered a three-ton lump of iron endowed with the strangest shape imaginable. It was bulbous and insect-like, and almost appeared to be abstract art but it was clear that this was intended to be a component of the machine. Another time, we found a lens, a ten-foot sheet of glass, bent slightly such that light would blur in its depths. And other components have been so small, one might think they were meant for a pocket watch. And these arrived in a small envelope, such as one through which one might carry thoughtful correspondence. Yet these components have apparently all been completed. All the necessary parts have been fashioned. There have been no new shipments in the harbor or orders placed for over half a year now. Ah, oh, so it's finished, Max said. Or nearly so. All that's left is to put the thing together. They're almost ready to turn it on. Romani nodded. 
So it would seem. Could be a bomb, Ian muttered. Maybe even an atomic bomb. What is that? Gustav asked. There'll be a war. Two of them, actually. World wars, Max said, ignoring their drained, numb expressions. The second one, it'll end with a new type of bomb. A nuclear bomb. It creates an explosion unlike anything seen before. I'm talking about something that could level all of New York itself. Like a sun has been dropped on a city. Gustav was speechless. Uh, That's incredible. Did you say a world war? Romani asked, interrupting. Ian nodded. Yes, uh, I'm sorry to say, the first one will start in a couple years. The second one, that's in the 40s. The 1940s. Every country on the planet is basically involved. Romani went pale. But if you stay in New York, you'll be safe, Max said quickly. They're both fought in Europe. America won't be invaded. But this bomb, Gustav said. This atomic bomb. It sounds like something out of Jules Verne or H.G. Wells. Max nodded grimly. It is. Gustav shook his head. No. The machine is something other than this atomic bomb, I think. That would be too crude. It is not subtle enough. Jadeth was anything but subtle, Ian said, rolling his eyes. True, but here Archons are involved. It is not subtle enough for them, is what I meant. There is a deeper purpose here than just an enormous explosion. Ian thought hard for a moment and then said, Well, the machine does seem to be physics-related. I mean, it's huge, and it requires exotic materials of exacting specifications. Gustav nodded slowly. Perhaps. But why children? Ian asked. Why are they running around town kidnapping children? Gustav shrugged. That is a great mystery to us as well. At first, we thought it might be for slave labor. Perhaps a child's hands could perform labor that an adult's could not. But then it wouldn't make sense to kidnap mere babies. Pooling infants would not be much use in assembling their great machine. Max thought for a moment and then said, Okay, so we know they're building something, but we don't know what. And they need children, but we don't know why. Well, forget about all that for a second. Max brushed his long brown hair out of his face and then continued, We weren't expecting to find you here. The hidden hand, that is. We had no way of anticipating that a group of people who knew about the Dreamtime and Nuberians and all that would be here in 1912. But since we have found you, it's occurred to me that there may be another way I can accomplish at least part of what I'm after. Romani said nothing but merely stared at him. The secret that Dr. Gustav saw in my mind. The Cryptonesia shadow. I don't know what it actually is, but I do know a few things about it. Romani and Gustav nodded. I think it's something that threatens the Nuberians. It's why they're trying to kill me. And like I said, I think my secret can somehow neutralize their machine. Gustav made a few notes and then said, Go on. Well, normally, most of the time, I don't have any idea that I'm a Nuberian. The fact that I even know now is a relatively recent development. I know that I've lived for thousands of years, a sequence of secret lives, one after the other, thinking I'm human. It's a charade I apparently inflict upon myself. I hide my memory, and with Mr. E's help, again and again, 
I find some corner of the world to disappear into. But invariably, wherever I am, I start to suspect the ruse. I begin, you know, finding little clues, things that don't add up. Or maybe I come across a part of an older life. A person, a book, or a picture. Eventually, I piece enough together, and I discover the back door in a book, and wham, I end up back at the tower with Mr. E. And I confront him. I demand to know my secret. And grudgingly, and each time, grudgingly, Mr. E opens my mind, and I know the secret once again. But without fail, I'm horrified, and I instantly demand that he inflict cryptonesia on me again. He does so, and then he finds a new corner of the world to hide me in, and the cycle starts all over again. Only the last time, during the pocket, Mr. E flat out refused to open my mind. The threat from Jadith was too great, he said. The cryptonesia had successfully protected me from the singular eye. Mr. E wanted to leave it right where it was, just in case something like that was tried on me again. But now I've lost Mr. E and the ability to unlock the secret. Max took a deep breath and then voiced his thought. So, I want you to unlock my memory. I want you to open my mind to my secret. Gustav gave Romani a worried look. I've encountered this mentalist technique before. This cryptonesia. It is quite difficult to crack. It is a way of binding the subconscious attention with words. And of course, Enki is the master of these things. Should we attempt to open Max's mind, we would essentially be trying to pick a lock designed by a maestro. In 1907, we intercepted a human courier that the Nuburians were using to send messages between their nests. A society gentleman who was completely unaware that he was being exploited in this way. I had him here, in this very house. I believed I could easily unlock his cryptonesia and reveal to us the contents of his messages. And this would have given us the location of the other nests and perhaps unmatched the plans of the Nuberians. But they had cleverly left traps beset with other traps. Anyone attempting to crack their courier encounters a hornet's nest. At first, the man tried to kill me with a contact poison he carried in his ring. But failing that, his mind induced cardiac arrest. He gave himself a heart attack before he would have been forced to give up his secrets. He was dead within minutes of my attempt. I was horrified. I had terribly underestimated what I was dealing with. The price had been this innocent man's life. A flicker of a tear entered Gustav's gaze. Max was silent. You see, this is a dangerous business. And this is Enki's cryptonesia we're discussing. And this is Enki's cryptonesia we're discussing, which will undoubtedly be several orders of magnitude better crafted than the botch job that Nuberian Couriers was. No, I do not think it is a good idea. Not in the least. Romani nodded slowly, d despite her own disappointment. I have to agree. Max fumed for a moment. They were unwilling to even try. I know you are disappointed, Max, Romani said. I would not ask it of you or Gustav. You will have to find another way. But I'm willing to take the risk, Max almost shouted. It's not like the man you accidentally killed who didn't have a choice in the matter. I know that it might kill me, but I'm ready to... No, Romani repeated. It is not that there is a slim chance that it would work, and we should thus risk it. Rather, 
It is that Gustav has experience with this, and it is virtually certain not to work, and to result in your death. No, I will place our long bets elsewhere. Max nodded, reluctantly accepting this, but only because he had one more idea. Okay, so that's out. But what about this? You're all adepts at using the dream time. You have a kind of understanding that I don't. You have learning that I don't. If you won't try to open my mind to my secret, then maybe I can learn what I can do another way. The old-fashioned way. Maybe you could teach me. You know, train me. Help me understand what you do. Help me to do it myself. He looked expectantly at them both. Will you teach me? Max asked. Gustav sighed. He seemed reluctant. It won't change anything. It won't solve your problems. Behind every mystery are ever more mysteries. It'll just make you powerful, and that may be a blessing or a curse. I understand, Max replied. No, no, you really don't. You can't possibly understand. I need... Max blurted and then collected himself. Look, there are people trying to kill me. I need knowledge. I need power. All I'm asking is for you to help me defend myself. I'm helpless right now the way things stand. Gustav studied him for a long moment. You're never helpless. I thought you would have known that by now. Power is, like everything, just an illusion also. It's another trap in its own way. You can identify yourself with your power and lose yourself in the process. Max sagged. What do you want me to say? I hear what you're saying, even though I might not fully understand it. I hear that this knowledge can have its own pitfalls. It's dangerous. It's not to be taken lightly. It's not going to magically make everything better. But I want you to teach me anyway, because knowing is better than not knowing. Gustav nodded with a twinkle in his eye. Ah, I felt the same way when I began my learning. That I would rather know the truth, whatever it was, than be mired in illusion. Gustav puffed his pipe thoughtfully. I have never before refused anyone who came to me for knowledge. Not when they truly ask. And you are truly asking. What I fear for you, Max. You have remarkable potential. You detected my attempt to sneak into your mind. And you were able to surprise me. But that wasn't just because you're Niburian. It's something else as well. You're a wild talent. If I teach you, if I give you knowledge, I believe that you will become very powerful indeed. But you have to be very clear that this is something you actually want. Do not lust for power for its own sake. Power is just power. In the end, you are still the same. You are still you. But once you have power, now you hold a knife. And a knife can turn on you as well. Max was silent, and then he spoke evenly. I want it. I'm sure. I'm asking you to teach me. Please. To succeed, it will take everything you have, Gustav replied. I'm ready, Max answered. Gustav looked at Romani. It is your decision, Carlos, she said to him. I will defer to whatever you think is best. Gustav nodded and then nodded to Max. All right, then I agree. I will teach you. Max beamed from ear to ear. Finally, some progress at last. Dr. Gustav, 
Ian interjected. Would it be possible for you to teach me as well? I mean, I probably won't be as good at it as Max, but I don't know, maybe I could, like, sort of audit the class. Gustav shook his head. No, Ian, I'm afraid not. Learning such as this is dangerous. It's not like history or math, where any number of students may listen to a lecture. No. With this subject, the teacher must protect the student as they learn. He must always be alert, on his guard at all times. And having two students to protect at once is simply impossible. It's too dangerous for all involved. Ian shrank in disappointment. I'm sorry, Ian, Gustav added. I would if there were a way. Ian nodded. I understand. But actually, he didn't. He was simmering inside. It made him angry to be left behind like this. Already, he was feeling like the one weak link in the house of the hidden hand, the talentless one amidst all these wonderfully talented people. He was the assistant. Max's offhand comment still galled him, and there were no computers to hack or Nuberian artifacts for him to decipher here. Therefore, there was nothing for him to contribute. He was simply a liability and a mouth to feed, and that was it. And he found very quickly that he didn't like the way that felt one bit. One last thing, Romani said, standing and pacing now. Her golden hoop earrings bounced in her hair like warnings. You should know that the House of the Hidden Hand, Fariaro, Michel, myself, Gaspar, Sembava, the reason we all came together here in New York was because of the machine. Max cocked his head. How so? All of us, in our own way, had the vision of great darkness, a shadow which would erupt in this time and place. All of our lives we have known this. Sembaba, for example, felt the cold hand on his heart all the way in Tibet. When he examined his feelings, he found himself drawn towards the West. He could not refuse this call, despite his deepest wish to remain in the mountains in meditation. It disturbed him and would not let him go. Finally, he resolved to find passage to America, to find this cold hand, to give battle to it. And only then did he find some measure of peace. And I, myself, I have had nameless nightmares my entire life, of a spout of black ink that pours out of the city, a great seething mass of it. It consumes the city and then spreads out to the rest of the world. When I was younger, I could not name what this place was that I saw in my mind. The racket and commotion of New York was hardly imaginable to a country girl as I was then. But as time passed, I came to know that it was this place, in this day and age that we live in now. In short, all of us were drawn together into the house of the hidden hand one at a time. In our own way, none of us really had a choice. We had to answer. And one by one, we found one another and combined our knowledge and strength and sought out others like ourselves. And now, at the last, you and Ian have come to us as well. And over the years we learned of the Nuberians, of course, and their secret nests all over the world. And it did not take long for us to realize that this nameless enemy that haunted the dream time was the same force behind the machine, these Nuberians. And finally, we believe the machine is the means by which the Nuberians mean to accomplish this great darkness. 
that the Archons are involved does not greatly surprise us, but it is a grim omen, and it speaks of a fair purpose that is afoot. We do not know specifically what it is, but it seems clear to us the machine opens some power to them that they greatly covet. Max nodded, eyes burning. And that's why we have to stop it. Sambava took Ian aside as they all left the room, noting his dejected appearance. Ian, I'm sorry that Dr. Gustav isn't able to take you on as a student. I know you must be disappointed. Ian nodded. Is there some reason why you can't teach me, or Madame Romani? Sambava shook his great head. No, Gustav is the only one of us with the patience, the, the talent to be a teacher. We were all able to be students, but only he is the teacher. Ian actually felt embarrassed at how furious he felt. Max was smiling excitedly and talking with Gustav, arranging their first training session, no doubt. Come, Sambava said. I have an errand. Why don't you come with me? On impulse, Ian nodded, taking him up on it at once. All right. Come on, let's go. Grumpily, Ian left the house with Sambava. The gentle giant, as Ian called Sambava in his mind, trotted happily along the macadam streets. He was all but whistling in self-satisfaction. He had changed from his normal saffron robes into an outfit more befitting a gentleman of the times, a dark suit, overcoat, and bowler hat. Ian's feelings of personal uselessness only intensified as they walked. He hardly even noticed the miracle of strolling in a long-gone afternoon of the past in 1912 New York City. But still, it was the principle of the thing. In one instant, he'd been rendered completely useless. It miffed him. It made everything even worse, and he was miserable in a way that only the English can make an art of feeling miserable. Yet, the giant Asian didn't seem to take offense. On the contrary, nothing seemed to dampen his spirits. He seemed to always be bubbling with a serene kind of joy. If anything, he was amused by Ian's sour mood, and seemed to invite Ian to be amused by it as well. This, of course, had the opposite effect. Ian scowled at him. At least have the common courtesy to be offended, Ian thought. Sambaba just laughed softly as they walked, taking the light in the air, the sky, the ground, just about anything. Well, aren't you, Mr. Happy Pants? Ian thought with a new rush of delicious bitterness. Sammy! Someone yelled. Sambava turned. A sprightly old man ran up to them. Sammy! He said again, grabbing him by the hand and shaking it vigorously. Sammy Bravo! Good to see you, my friend! Sammy Bravo? Ian thought, dumbfounded and amused at once. It must be an Americanization of Simbaba, like Johnny Siren had been for Jonathan Serranus. Aloy, Simbaba said with a perfect American accent. Ah, my friend Aloy, how have you been? Ian stared at Simbaba in amazement. It was like someone else's voice was coming out of his mouth. There was not a trace of the Asian accent Simbaba normally spoke with. Instead, he now sounded as if he had spent his entire life in New York City. Listen, Sammy, Aloy said and then looked nervously at Ian. That's okay, Aloy. You can speak freely. He's a friend of mine. A good friend. Aloy nodded, still somewhat reluctant. Right, well, here it is then. Those Pinkertons I was telling you about? Well, they're in the restaurant right now. They just sat down to dinner. Simbaba's eyes lit up. Ah, this is fortuitous indeed. 
Ian, there's a conversation I wish to listen in on. You'll have to come with me and say nothing. We may hear much that concerns us. Ian nodded, his spirits perking up at having something to do. Let's go, Sambhava said, and together they hurried up the street. As they walked, Ian whispered to Sambhava, What's a Pinkerton? A detective, Sambhava answered in a normal voice. The Pinkertons are the foremost detective agency in the world. Before Ian had a chance to probe this further, Aloys led them into a small Italian restaurant and seated them in a booth. He navigated their path through the tables and other booths such that the occupants of the booth directly behind Simbava did not notice their arrival. Ian noticed that he could watch the men through a small knot hole in the woods separating their booths. After some small talk between the two men, the conversation suddenly turned to another matter to which Simbava and Ian listened with a great deal of interest. Inspector Flibber, said the first man. Yes, Inspector Slather, said the second. Inspector Flibber, we have known each other these past twenty years or so. Yes, Mr. Slather, we have indeed. Through thick and thin, rough and roses, bloom and bother. Slather's brow furrowed. Then he said, <laughs> Well, uh, there's a delicate matter of extreme importance I wish to discuss in confidence with you. Can I count on your discretion? Flibber looked suddenly concerned and leaned closer. Of course, Inspector Slather. You may indeed. How may I be of service? Slather struggled to begin, and then said, Well, it is not widely known, but over the past few years there has been a sharp rise in infant and child disappearances all over the city. Flibber looked shocked. You don't say. I do and it is a very mysterious business, I'm afraid. How so? Well, it seems that the children are being taken, stolen as if by grim fairies. Despicable! Villainous! Even the lowest of low men would say so. Indeed, indeed, I rather agree, having known several low men in my own time. But here's what concerns me. The manner of their taking is not impeded by any sort of wall, window, lock, or door. Nor is it impeded by daylight, or even the presence of witnesses who swear the children simply vanish before their sight. Flibber appeared flabbergasted. Or perhaps in this case, flibbergasted. Yes, Slather said to Flibber's astonished face. You have known me for a long while, and you know that it pains me to even speak of such an absurdity, having a healthy respect for facts and figures, science and empirical evidence. Any Pinkerton would demand no less. And yet, I cannot deny the multiple reports, the credulity of the witnesses. They are in some cases the leading citizens of society. What? What do you think is happening? Flibber stuttered. Well, we do have one lead, Slather replied conspiratorially. It is a rather mysterious lead, which is befitting the mysterious proceedings, perhaps. There is a nursery, an orphanage. It is kept by one Mrs. Millicent Madworth. An orphanage? Are you suggesting the orphanage is thieving children? What on earth for? They try to get families to adopt their children, to take them off their hands. Never once in my life have I heard of an orphanage that tries to steal children from families. Slather tissed. I didn't say that. But here it is. Two weeks ago... There was a society function attended by Mrs. Madworth and a certain Mr. Tuttle, Tuttle, Octavius Tuttle, the chocolatier and railroad man, 
Yes, the same. It seems Mr. Tuttle was a bit tipsy upon this evening. He turned around rather quickly, and his wine glass went flying from his hand. It splashed Mrs. Madworth directly in the face, soaking her visage and wimple to the bone. Flibber gasped. No! Slather nodded. Oh, yes. And by all reports, Madworth appeared to barely restrain herself from some wicked act, from committing some unspeakable crime right there on the spot. Flibber nodded. Go on. Slather smiled slightly. Well, Madworth merely wiped her face and then turned to the blubbering, profusely apologizing Tuttle and by all accounts said, You will pay, Tuttle, for this insult with that which is most precious to you. Madworth then proceeded to depart, muttering on about temperance and how Tuttle should not have been so drunk. And two days later, both of Tuttle's small children, Priam and Lavender, disappeared. Flibber turned white. You think Madworth? Well, we went to question her, to the orphanage on Bleecker. There was no answer at her door, so we broke the door down and entered. But the place was deserted as a tomb. No children, no Madworth. Flibber was silent. Well, I don't know what to say, he finally responded. Has the agency settled on a policy of any sort regarding this matter? Slather snorted in disgust. <laughs> not at all. The agency cannot understand what is happening, and the reports are all filled with such oddities that it merely files them away in the same file as ghosts and vampires and other such nonsense. Nobody likes to talk about them, as you can imagine. It's all so medieval. Yes, I, I see, Flibber replied. You seem rather vexed about this, Slather, you know? Of course I'm vexed, aren't you? Slather fumed. Well, of course I'm not delighted, but I simply do not see what is to be done. As you say, it is ghosts and goblins which are absconding with these children. And what you saw pistols and badges against such as these. Slather was fit to be tied. They could hear him fidgeting. I thought you might put a word in, Flibber. Uh, a word at the top. The very top. Something that might get the agency off its collective arse and do something about this. But Flibber calmly replied, Oh no, my friend. <laughs> you must be quite mistaken. These are delicate times, and this is a, well, a rather spectral matter. I don't believe it would be prudent of me at all. Why, what would people say? There goes Flibber. He is always on about nonsense. Oh, I am so very sorry, Mr. Slather, but I'm afraid I can do nothing about these proceedings without more to go on. And by more, I mean something substantial, reductive, concrete. Slather sat for a moment and stewed, and then grabbed his hat and stood. Well, then, this matter is concluded. Good day to you, sir. Good day, Liber agreed blandly, and then continued to finish his meal as Slather slithered from his presence in annoyed consternation. Sambaba eyed Ian for a moment and then said, Wait, silently. After five minutes, Flibbard finished his meal and left the restaurant. Sambaba and Ian followed. Fifteen minutes later, they had tailed Flibbard back to his office. The lock was no problem for Sambaba. Ian watched as he merely looked at it and the bolt slid itself open. 
They entered the building and casually strolled into Flipper's office. When they arrived, Flipper had just taken a healthy swig of whiskey from a bottle and nearly spat it out when he saw them. Hello, Simbava said. Inspector Flipper, I couldn't help but overhear the conversation you were just having with your friend, Inspector Slather. Flipper eyed Simbava narrowly and swallowed. Eavesdropping is rather impolite, sir. Especially from a celestial such as yourself. Simbava continued unoffended. So, you will do nothing about this Madworth, I am to understand. How did you get in here? Flipper asked, looking around, and fumbling for his pistol. Who are you? Oh, never mind all that for now, Simbaba commanded hypnotically. I want to know what you, the Pinkertons, intend to do about Madworth. Children are disappearing. Doesn't that concern you? Of course it does, Flipper replied. Guilt twisted his face plainly. He placed his pistol on his desk. You think I like this? But you feel you don't have a choice, Sambava suggested. Of course I don't have a choice. Oh, you have no idea what they would do to me. We've been told to ignore it, you know. At the highest levels, as it were. The tippy top. They're already watching Slather. It's all I can do to keep him from being killed, you know. I told them I would keep him quiet. Oh, but after our conversation tonight, I do hope he has the good sense to leave it alone. You don't say, Simbava said. I do. I do indeed. Flibber looked around nervously, as though they might be in this very room. They're not afraid of anyone, you know. Oh, not anyone. Oh, well, except one person. But we're supposed to shoot him on sight if we find him. Simbava raised an eyebrow. Oh, who might that be? Another child. Somebody, uh, uh, somebody named Quick. Ian's stomach dropped out from under him. They were looking for Max to kill him? It was the same here in this time. The Niberians of 1912 wanted Max Quick dead as well. Zimbabwe didn't react. This Quick child, do you have any leads? Flibber snorted and took another swig. Ha! Not a one. In this city, a boy could be anywhere. But we do have our ears open. We're a patient lot, we Pinkertons. People always get sloppy sooner or later. You never know when he might fall into our lap. Simbaba nodded and bowed. Thank you, Inspector Flibber. You have been most helpful. Anytime, Flibber gushed, smiling. Anytime at all. Thanks for stopping by. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas indeed. Merry Christmas, Sambava agreed. You will not remember this conversation after we have left. Oh no, Flipper said. Of course not. My discretion in this matter can be counted upon. That's good to know. Very appreciated, Sambava said, motioning to Ian to leave with him. Together they closed the door and stepped back onto the streets of the city. The bloody Nuberians are trying to kill Maxon this time as well. Ian exploded, once they were safely away from Flibber's office. Simbaba nodded gravely. Yes, it would seem so. But how in the world did they find out his name? Ian asked. That's harder to know. The Nuberians have many nests throughout the world, many webs of information. Which one alerted them how they came to know it? Well, one guess is as good as another. And the cops, the Nuberians have the cops in their pocket. 
Simbaba laughed. Of course! They have many operatives in human government, finance, and law enforcement, Ian. They can easily pull strings at the highest levels. The tippy top, Ian quoted Flibber sardonically. The tippiest top, Simbaba agreed with a rueful smile. The question is, which Max are they looking for? The young Max that lives in 1912? Or the older one, our Max? Oh, the young one, of course, Simbaba replied simply. They don't know about the older one, and the young one has nothing to worry about, it would seem. How's that? We have the older one as proof that the younger one makes it out okay. Oh, right. But the older one, your friend, has to be doubly careful now. He is here in a time when the Nuberians are trying to kill someone named Max Quick. If he lets his name slip to the wrong person, well, the older Max would have no such assurances as the younger one as to his fate. You've been listening to Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this Podio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover.